Thank you for listening to this recording of one of the sermons at Christ Presbyterian Church in Milford, Connecticut. The sermon is one part of our public worship on Sundays at Christ Presbyterian Church, Milford. While much of the sermon has broad application, it is directed specifically to the congregation here in Milford and reflects our lives, needs, concerns, and context. We think it's important to note that the sermon follows many other aspects of worship, praise, singing, confession of sins and absolution, scripture reading, and sometimes a baptism or the reception of new members. It precedes prayers, confessions of faith, an offering, and our celebration of the Lord's Supper. All of these are integrated and ideally should not be separated. We're particularly concerned not to separate word and sacrament. By its nature, the sermon calls for a response, receiving the Lord's Supper with the accompanying prayers, reflections, and life of response and community. If you're not a part of Christ's presence, Milford, we hope the sermon is helpful to you and propels you to a full worship and engagement with Jesus' body in your own community. So we have been doing a sermon series in the Minor Prophets, and we now come to the prophet Obadiah. I am Obadiah is one of the shortest books in Scripture, and so we're going to actually look at the whole text. It's not really all that long. It's, you know, the front and a little bit of the back of a page. Um, but it's, it's the story of God basically telling the nation of Edom, you're going to get destroyed. I'm taking you out. And with a, with a picture like that, it can sound kind of vindictive. So I want us to, to think about this. Um, when, we, uh, when Abby was pregnant with Ellie, we found out early in the pregnancy that it was going to be a girl. And for some reason, because both of us came from families that had, you know, had boys first, it was kind of like jar. Wait a minute, we have a girl? What's, what, we're going to be parents of a girl? How's this going to work? Girls come later in the lineup. You know? So as, as we're like wrestling through and figuring that out, people start making jokes to me about, well, you know, when, when she gets to be a teenager and starts having suitors, you're, you're going to need to be sitting out on the front porch cleaning your guns or something. And it's amazing how quickly as a, you know, yet unborn dad of a baby girl, I immediately enter into that, yeah, you know? Maybe, maybe Connecticut appropriateness, I can you know, get the, the musket out and be cleaning it on the porch. But um, there's, there's a, a, in that image, me sitting out on the porch cleaning guns to intimidate Ellie's potential suitors, um, th- there's, you know, a, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. And I've got to think about why that is. Um, part of it is just a, here's a person or an event or something that intimidates me, and I'm going to use my power for that. I, I was out bicycling the other day and uh, passing motorists that didn't understand the rules of the road screams idiot at me and you know something else and I immediately start thinking you know I need to carry a paintball gun with me when I'm out bicycling. <laughs> That's a sinful response. But at the same time it, engaging again this may, maybe not actually literally sitting on the front porch cleaning guns but there's a, a side to that image that's appropriate because as Ellie's father I've been called to be her protector. And so what I'm engaging, you know, part of it is just the, the sinful side of me, engagement, the wanting to carry a paintball gun, whatever. But the other side of it is I'm called to be her protector, the one who cares for her. And that's what we see going on in Obadiah, is God's fatherly care for his people being spelled out. And, you know, all of us, all humans, live in a dangerous world where we want protection and we feel the lack of protection, so we have fear. And a book like Obadiah is telling us that God is a protecting father to his children and is offering comfort in that. Um, 
let me pray, and then we're, we're going to read the whole text, and I'll give you a little bit of a, an outline for what we're doing. Reading the text is going to take a while, because I'm going to spend time kind of explaining things as we go. Then we'll actually sort of go into the, the exegetical work of it. Um, but let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we come needing you. Because in the same way that I can see in my response to the the suggestion of needing to protect my daughter, both sinful and positive responses, we come to your word uh, wanting to shy away from things that it might call us to, or wanting to to separate ourselves so we're we're not vindictive like that. And yet you are not a vindictive God. You are the one who has ordered the universe for the good of your people and for your glory. And at the same time, we we realize it is easy when we're told as your people that the the universe is ordered to our good, uh, that we want to lay claim to that to just be able to be whatever we feel like, as opposed to seeking to actually serve you faithfully, uh, minister your justice and goodness before the world. And so, Lord, enable us to walk that knife edge of tension between the ways that we might abuse the reality of your care and love and goodness for your people and comfort us with the reality of your fatherly protection. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So we're reading from the book of Obadiah, and I won't say the chapter because there's only one. But we're starting in the first verse. The vision of Obadiah. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Uh, Obadiah is kind of unique because you just got all the historical context that Obadiah explicitly gives us. Um, In a typical prophetic book, you get a mixture of oracles of God, thus saith the Lord, such and such and so and so. Um, And when I was standing by the Chibar Canal in such and such a year and this happened. Or in the year of this king, I went before the Lord and I saw... And so we can see from those things a lot of, you know, material to say, oh, this is when this prophet is speaking from. Well, Obadiah doesn't give us any details beyond the oracle itself apart from the vision or oracle of Obadiah. And so dating Obadiah is difficult. Um, Commentators kind of go all over the map on when to put Obadiah. I think what makes the most sense, because it refers to the destruction of Jerusalem as an event that happened, and that the judgment that is being spelled out against this nation of Edom is specifically for their role in the destruction of Jerusalem, I think it's reasonable to put this after, rather, 586 B.C., when Jerusalem is destroyed. Um, The other thing for for dating is that the judgment against Edom that it is spelling out is a judgment that apparently is carried out by the Babylonians in 553 B.C. So to me, it makes the most sense to put it in that approximately 30-year period between 586 and 553 because it looks back to the destruction of Jerusalem and it looks forward to the destruction of Edom. So that gives us a a rough dating for when we might expect the book to be. Um, The other thing to, to think about from that little passage there, everything from here forward is the oracle. Is So we, we talk about the way that Scripture is inspired, uh, that God speaks by his people. And so when Moses is writing the Pentateuch for us, you can sort of see Moses' personality. You, you can tell that this is a person of deep sympathy for the Hebrews, but a person who was raised, uh, you know, the son of Pharaoh. Uh, when we read Paul versus Peter, we can see differences in the way that they use Greek and differences in, in perspective and so on, and that's not a problem. 
God rather so ordered and so ordained their lives in order to make them the perfect vehicle for the Scripture. And yet in Obadiah, we get almost nothing of Obadiah because the entire book is the vision, the oracle that God gave to Obadiah. And so that changes slightly how we how we deal with it. We're, we're not worried so much about historical seeding of it. We're, we're not looking to what's going on in Obadiah's life because we're not given any of that. We're just dealing with the, the face value statement. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. We'll, we'll note here, Edom is the people that descend from Esau. Uh, so at Israel's founding, or, you know, the, way, way back in the, the patriarchal period, uh, Abraham gives birth to Isaac. Isaac gives birth to two boys, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob becomes Israel. But there's a rivalry between Esau and Jacob. And while the boys patch up their rivalry and become good friends towards the ends of their life, the nations continue to picture that rivalry. And so this is Israel's uh, cousin nation. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwellings, who say in your hearts, who will bring me down to the ground? Now, the land of Edom is across the Dead Sea from where Israel is, in an area that is today modern Jordan. Uh, but if you're at all familiar with that area, you may have heard of Petra. Um, Petra is this uh, like deep relief carved city back in the canyons or wadis of uh, the Jordan Valley. Uh, not, sorry, not Jordan, of, of Jordan's uh, you know, valley region. Um, if you've seen the movie, is it uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Uh, there's, there's a scene in that movie where there's this long chase scene up this long canyon. And the canyon comes out to this just amazing building that is this, you know, it looks like a Greek temple but carved out of the solid stone. And then, of course, Indy goes back into the building and, you know, he goes like seemingly miles back into the, you know, half the movie takes place in there. Well, actually, I've, I've been to Petra. That room that you go into is about 15 feet deep and it's just an empty box carved out of stone. But the, the inhabitants of Petra, the Nabataeans, are the people that follow the Edomites there. And they learn to take advantage of this very harsh environment they lived in to make it essentially an impregnable fortress. Uh, if you've got to get all the way through that wadi, through that canyon to get there, then the people can be up on the cliffs above you showering you with projectiles. And so this is how the Edomites tended to defend themselves. They would take advantage of the reality of the geography that they lived in. But God says that that is pride. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks. You who say in your heart, who will bring us down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how would you have been, uh, how you have been destroyed? Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? He's comparing the destruction they're experiencing to man. If, if you had been beset by thieves, it would have been better for you. You're going to get destroyed. How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They've prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. 
Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. You shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off the wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So this is picturing the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And you might expect, as a small nation with a long history of uh, kinship to another small nation, that when you see that small nation getting destroyed by Babylon, you might, you might go to help them. You, you might not go to help them, but you certainly would do what you could for the survivors. And yet the picture we're getting is that Edom didn't do that, that Edom actually participated with the Babylonians. Do not gloat over the days of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. The implication here is that's exactly what Edom had done. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So the picture here is that some of the Israelites fleeing are going to Edom, and Edom, instead of providing shelter for them, instead of protecting them and hiding them, is pillaging them, is cutting them down, is maybe offering to provide shelter and then going to the Babylonians and saying they're hiding here. Edom is opposed to trying to, you know, even if they were not going to stand up to Babylon, which probably would have been suicide, Edom could easily have provided shelter, have provided refuge, and yet they didn't. They took advantage of Israel in its day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. And we talked about this concept of the day of the Lord, I think, last week. Uh, this picturing of a day of judgment, of God coming to give justice. The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. It may look to Edom like Babylon is powerful and Babylon is doing what Edom wants. And yet God is saying he is more powerful than the nations and he will bring his justice to them. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continuously. They shall drink and swallow and shall, it shall be as though they have never been. Now it's hard to, to know quite the, the picture going on here. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, is that meaning you're drinking the wealth of Israel? Uh, so all the nations shall drink continually, and yet that drinking seems to be destructive. They shall drink and swallow. They'll be forced to swallow. It seems it's the cup of the wrath of God. It's God's vengeance being poured out for the nations to drink, and it shall be as though they have never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau a stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor in the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess the Mount of Esau. He's describing regions of the, the allotment of land that was given to Israel. The Negeb is, is one of the, the southern region. Shall possess Mount Esau. Those of the Shephelah, another region of Israel, shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shephrad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, 
I've spent some time kind of explaining what's going on in the text, but I want to start bringing up some, some questions we need to ask of the text. Uh, we don't, we don't want to just ask the things that make us curious. We want to ask, rather, what are the things that, that matter to the author? What are the questions the author wants us asking? And I'm, in my outline from here, I'm going to ask three questions. I'm relying heavily on a sermon by the professor that I took uh, prophets with, Dr. Jack Collins, uh, in a sermon that he preached on Obadiah. Uh, the first question is specific to this book, why Edom? Why are we seeing this level of bloodthirstiness, if you will, against Edom? Uh, the second question has to do with a, a question we ask of all prophecy. Uh, what's contingent about this, and what does fulfillment mean? And so we'll spend some time digging into that. And then the, the third one that we ask, uh, looking from where we are in history. Uh, we're not Israel living in exile at the time that this comes. We're God's people, New Testament people, the, the New Testament church. And so what does a prophecy like this speak to us? So first, why Edom? Now I noted they're descended from Esau. You can see in verse 6 and verse 18 where they're referred to either as Esau collectively or as the house of Esau. Uh, Esau is the brother of the founder of the nation of Israel. And Esau has a function in the history of Israel as sort of being representative of the, the reviling, the, the, the hatred of foreign nations towards Israel. Uh, you'd think it's sort of strange. You see Esau and Jacob go through a period of anger and of, of violence towards each other, and then you see them reconciled. And so you'd hope that you would see that in the nations, and yet that's not the experience. Uh, in Numbers 20, when the people of Israel are making their way back from Egypt, uh, they're, they're coming through the lands leading up to the promised land, and wherever they have to get into a fight, God gives them victory. And they pretty easily just sweep through nations. Well, they come to Edom, and they say, well, th this is a, these are our cousin peoples. This is, this is a nation that's, that's related to us. So they say, we're not going to go to war with them. And they, they go to the Edomites, and they say, just let us pass through, and we won't take anything. We'll stick to the road. We won't touch anything. We, we're not here to do war. And Edom says, no. We don't care that you've had to fight for everything, that you've been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. We don't care. You're not coming in here. It's a pretty bold statement, given Israel has just cut through any nation they've had to thus far. But Edom says, no, we'll go to war with you if we have to. And Israel shows grace and goes around and doesn't engage Edom. In 2 Chronicles 20, uh, depicting something that happened in the 9th century B.C., Edom actually comes and tries to invade Israel and make war with Israel. And they're repulsed and they're sent packing. But there's again this, why is there this ongoing enmity towards God's people from their cousin nation, from these people that should be showing them grace? And it's this, this type that they start to form, this picture in the prophets of Edom as the enemies of God's people. Uh, listen to this from Amos, one of the earlier minor prophets. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with a sword and cast off all pity. And his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Uh, the prophet Joel that we haven't gotten to yet. Joel is very hard to date, but Joel has a similar statement. Egypt shall become a desolation in Edom, a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. In Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3, you read, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. 
uh, the New Testament picks up this theme. That particular verse is cited in Romans 9, 13, but in, in Hebrews 12, 15, and 16, we read, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. We see this sort of ongoing theme of Edom as the, the type, the, the form of what it looks like for a nation outside of God's people to be opposed to God's people. And so that is why Edom is being set up in this way. God is saying, when the nations oppose my people, I will protect my people. I will not abandon them to the nations. So the second, we want to get into these issues of what, what is conditionality here look like? Is it conditional? You might think of in Jonah, when Jonah came and said to Nineveh, God is going to destroy you. He didn't then say, unless you repent. He just said, God is going to destroy you. That was what God told him to say. And Nineveh had the insight to say, well, if we repent, maybe God will relent. And that is very typical of the prophets. Any prophecy that is being given to a people of destruction is basically inviting them to choose an alternative history, to change the way they're relating to God in order to invite God's grace on them. But while Obadiah is given, it is spoken to the Edomites, the, you know, the, the voice being given, the, the, the you in it is always the Edomites, it's not really for them. We have no evidence of any sort that Obadiah actually went to the Edomites and proclaimed this. Uh, this seems to have been given for Israel, about Edom. So while the, the you might be Edom, Edom isn't present to hear it. The audience is Israel. And Obadiah is telling Israel about this. And that changes contingency. It's not saying, Edom, I'm going to do this to you unless you repent. It's rather saying to Israel, hey Israel, you who have suffered, you who have experienced God's wrath poured out on you and have seen your cousins take advantage of that, I am going to bring justice. I'm going to bring vengeance. And so it does not appear to be a conditional prophecy. It's a prophecy where God is saying for the sake of his people, this is who I am and this is how I operate. I am your father and I love you and I care for you. And when the nations are destructive to you, I am going to be your protector. Now we want to get into what would fulfillment constitute. Well, most of the prophecy is a description of the destruction that is wrought against Edom by the Babylonians in 553 B.C. And so most of the prophecy is thoroughly fulfilled. And this is where we see uh, with a prophet, you know, the, the, the test of a prophet is, are the immediate things that the prophet predicts come true? And if so, then you can believe the other things that the prophet has to say. Well, it would be easy to think of Obadiah as entirely focused on 553. It's about the destruction of Edom. And when the destruction of Edom happens, Obadiah is fulfilled. But there's actually a little bit more that goes on in Obadiah. Uh, if you look at verse 15, where it talks about that the Lord, the Lord is near, uh, sorry, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. And when he describes in 16 this, as you, as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. It could well be that the you is Israel there. As you, Israel, experienced my pouring out my just wrath against your unfaithfulness on my holy mountain, 
I'm going to give that to the rest of the nations. And that makes good sense of that passage. And so it's not just the destruction of Edom, it's the destruction of all nations that do injustice. The destruction of all nations that are opposed to God and to God's people. In verse 19, we read, Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. Those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. He's starting to describe the regions that were promised to ancient Israel in the taking of uh, the promised land. Now, when we start wanting to, to picture fulfillment, it would be tempting to say, well, you know, there's a modern nation state that actually has political claim to all of the territory that gets described here. Maybe that's fulfillment. Well, the problem there is that modern nation state makes no claim to be the Messianic kingdom. It's a secular nation state. Uh, it denies the coming of Messiah. Uh, there's no reason to see in the existence of the modern state of Israel a fulfillment of this. Look at particularly verse 21 where we read, Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Uh, following the thorough destruction of Edom here, following the thorough destruction of Esau's people, there is actually a, a turning where we begin to see the people of Israel being pictured as those ruling justly, ruling well over the nations, over their traditional enemies, the Philistines, uh, the land of Samaria, the, like groups that Israel is going to be angry at. They're being told, you're going to rule, but not the, 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 the harshness and the destruction is passed by the time we get to verse 19. Now we're describing some future date after the destruction when Israel begins to rule the nations well, begins to care for and lead the nations as a just king, that's beginning to point towards the rule of Messiah. And actually, there, look at the plural here, in 21, saviors shall go up from Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. Uh, saviors is put in the plural. It's not just talking about what Messiah is going to do, but what Messiah is going to do by his people as Messiah uses his people to bring, once he has poured out his judgment, to bring his justice and mercy to bear in redeeming the creation. There's actually a, a picture of hope here of the kingdom of God coming to bear over all of the earth as God uses his people to rule the nations to his glory. Now, to that third question, how does it speak to us? We see the destruction of Edom that was wicked towards God's Old Testament people, but now living today as his New Testament people. Um, one thing is, the church's existence is guaranteed by God, her protector. You may have heard preachers or evangelists make comments like, you know, the church is always just one generation from extinction. That would be true of any institution if you think about it. If it doesn't perpetuate itself for just one generation, it ceases to exist. The problem with that statement is, well, we have the whole of Scripture, particularly places like Matthew 16, where God says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it as my church reaches out into the nations, destroying everything that is opposed to God. It doesn't work to try and motivate people to evangelism by telling them, watch out! It's dark times out there. There's, there's a dangerous culture out there, and if you aren't busy, God's going to leave us to ourselves. That's a false motivation. That's a wrong understanding of where our relationship is to God as he uses us as his people, as his agents, as his ministers. 
The church may theoretically be one generation from death, except that God says, I am the one who preserves it, and it will persevere. That speaks encouragement to us in the face of opposition. And I want to jump on some really pointed opposition. On uh, April 14th of 2014, the extremist um, Islamic terrorist group Boko Haram kidnapped 276 girls from a Christian school in the Chibok province of Nigeria. As of the, the best that I can tell today, um, while a large number of those girls have been freed and returned, uh, 100 are still captives and 13 were killed. The expressed goal of Boko Haram was to demonstrate the superiority of their radical version of Islam and force the conversion of these girls. And so what they were doing was telling the girls, convert and marry a Muslim man, or else you will live in slavery. Now, it, it does appear that they did not uh, sexually abuse the girls that didn't take the offer, but they forced a number of these girls to convert and marry. And today, there are still 100 of these girls living in captivity that have not been released. God calls these girls his daughters, and he loves them. And he does not close his eyes to their pain. He does not close his eyes to the reality of what is being visited against them. And a book like Obadiah says, I'm not going to give up on my people. I'm not going to sell my people to their enemies and let it go unanswered. Now, the answer may not come in this life. Some of these girls may go to their graves uh, forced into marriage and forced into going through the motions of a religion that they don't claim. But the holy God who stands over history says a day of judgment is coming when he answers all rebellion against him and when he vindicates those that he has cleansed with the blood of his son. When we look at the, the actions of nations like Myanmar, China, Burma, Ethiopia, places where there is open persecution of the church, God is saying this is not just some sort of random tides of history where we'll see what will happen. He is saying, rather, I am committed to my people, and I will care for my people in this world or the next. We can see an example of this, uh, the, the very example that Obadiah is talking about. God used Babylon to punish uh, Jerusalem. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who actually visited the final destruction on Jerusalem, died a believer in the God of heaven, in the true God. Uh, God doesn't just use his promise to protect his people for the purpose of bringing vengeance against his enemies. He sometimes converts his enemies and makes them his instruments. I've, this week, and I bring this up from time to time, been very frustrated with our search for a place. And it's easy to start feeling persecuted. It's easy to start feeling, you know, like, why is it it's so hard to get a consistent space to worship in? And why, you know, we, we try to bend over backwards to be servants to the city, and I just don't feel like there's any concern for, for reciprocation. Now, compared to the, the Boko Haram kidnapping, that's nothing. That's insignificant. 
But the reality is that God cares for His church, that God cares for you and cares for me, cares for His local church, and is going to build His church on His strength, not ours. As we wrestle with facing, you know, as, as Westerners, persecution is a pretty lowercase p for persecution, uh, but we face some level of persecution. And in that context, God says, I am for you. And whether you can see what I'm doing or not, I am using you for my glory and for your good. Now, in context where we're not confronting a clear, this person, this people group, this philosophy is an enemy of God's people, uh, this passage still speaks to God's commitment to applying His grace and to pushing back the forces of Satan. Uh, We have a friend that had a child that was born with a disability and required a shunt. And when he was three, the shunt malfunctioned, and he died at three. And we've had the opportunity to, from a distance, walk alongside these friends as they go through that pain. Uh, they're not confronting a, a physical person or people group or an enemy that we would say, well, well, that person is opposed to God. They're confronting the effects of the fall. But the effects of the fall, the impact of human sin on the world around us, is one of God's enemies. And God is working to roll back those effects. God promises that one day we're going to see a time when there is no more cancer. There is no more more COVID. There is no more sickness. There is no more death. There are no longer typhoons that destroy and kill human life. That God is working to roll back the effects of his enemies and sin and Satan are his primary enemies in the world around us. And we see in all of this that God is the one working. And just look at verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Jumping ahead to 18, the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn and consume them. He's actually using his church as his means of justice there. We want to be careful. That's not a a blank check given to the church to go do whatever you feel like. That's a call to the church to be faithful as God actually uses us as the instruments of converting the nations, of bringing the nations under submission to God, not by political and military means, but by his word. And in this closing picture, saviors shall go up from Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. God is the one doing this. God is the one guaranteeing this. God is the one who says, I'm a father who cares for my children. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as the protective father of your people, as the one who has ordered all of creation and who is committed to your mission, even more than your people are committed to your mission. You have promised that you are there for your children and that you are using us as you bring the reality of your justice but also your mercy to bear on the entire creation. Fill us and equip us for that task, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.